0: You're listening to The Hard Men Podcast, reclaiming biblical masculinity in a world of softness. Well, welcome to this episode of The Hard Men Podcast. In this episode, I want to start a new series that I am calling Top Shelf. This series will feature reviews. It's going to feature in-depth discussion by yours truly about the books that go on my top shelf. Now these are the books that I read and often reread each year and they provide much of the fuel for my life, my thought life and how that shapes my work. So like top shelf beverages, right? These are the premier written works I keep returning to for refreshment, for encouragement and for continual instruction. They're sort of like the Macallan 18 or the Ardbeg Uigdal They never disappoint, at least not for me. Likewise, these works represent the cornerstone books that have shaped and continue to shape my thinking and my life. If you want to be a great thinker, you want to have interesting thoughts, then you need to read great books. It was helpful for me. uh, One year, I read uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones, and he said books are really just guided meditations, right? You're reading the thoughts of the author and so that shapes your thinking and you get to see the world hopefully in a new way, it makes you more productive, happier, joyful and more faithful as a Christian. These are these are good things. So I hope to unpack more um starting with this show. Now the topical nature of the books that I'll be covering is somewhat eclectic. I have to admit that's sort of how I read, just all over the place, whatever's interesting. These works run the gamut from theological treatises to practical guides for establishing better habits on a daily basis, right? Some of them are about making room in your life to do your best work. Some of them are about rest. Some of them are inspiring biographies. There's historical accounts of famous expeditions like Shackleton's Endurance. There is military history like Michael Walsh's book, Last Stands. That's on the list. There's books on masculinity, forming a gang, and more. So, my goal with the Top Shelf series is to provide clear analysis and summary of the books that I've read, and I hope to do so in a manner that is informative and it is helpful for you. Even if you don't end up reading the book, though I certainly hope that you will, you can still benefit from the discussion and hopefully clear analysis. That comes along with practical application. That's really something that I benefit from these books because they're practical. I can learn things. I can apply it to my life. I can become a more virtuous and better person. Because many of us have busy schedules, my hope is that this series is going to help you whittle down your reading list, right? It's going to allow you to skip the tiresome, boring reads that are simply a waste of time and provide you with little benefit. Right, I hate that. I go through a lot of books, um, and some of them are just bad. You don't make it all the way through, even, and that's a waste of my time. So what I what I'm hoping to do, I'm not giving you recommendations about books that suck. I'm giving you recommendations about books that I think are really worth your while, and they're going to benefit you. Right, this is going to allow you to skip the tiresome, boring, as I said, reads that provide little benefit, and it's going to open the door to many new avenues for learning for yourself. Again. As my friend Dan Burkholder has said, if you want to be an interesting person, you need to read more, right? If you want to be interesting, you want to be well-rounded, you want to be virtuous, you have to read more, and in turn, you have to think more deeply about life, right? Doug Wilson has said that interesting people are interested people, right? If you want to be interesting to other people, then pick up books and read, right? The problem is so many of us, we want to be that guy. You remember Mark Driscoll, I read 10 books a day. I bet he didn't read 10 books a day. That seems impossible, right? We all want to be thought of as well-read, but nobody wants to do the work of reading. So what we need to do, and I hope this, again, top shelf inspires you, we need to actually read. So find things that are interesting. Uh, That's one of the tips I would give for reading. A lot of people say, um, you know, you should read a lot of books that are really boring and you don't like. Well, I tend to not finish those books. I don't know about you. So what I do is I follow my interests and I continue to read those books. I find a gold seam and then I continue reading. So that's a good plan for your reading as well. Find things that are interesting. And again, reading will definitely make you a more interesting person, particularly if you are interested in the subject matter that you're reading about. Now, it's worth noting that I've already reviewed a few books that I would certainly put on the top shelf series list. Uh, Even though I just started the series, these are sort of like pre-top-shelf series, but they definitely go on my list. And that's going to include a couple of books. Number one I would put on there is Zach Garris' Masculine Christianity. You've heard a lot about that book in this show. You've heard about Rory Grove's book, Durable Trades. That's going to be on my top-shelf list. You've heard about Matt Truello's book, The Doctrine of the Lesser Magistrates. That's going to go on my top-shelf list. List upcoming, we should have an interview with Michael Foster about the new book, It's Good to Be a Man coming out with Canon Press. We're gonna to talk to him more about that. We've talked to him a little bit about it in the past, but now we have some more details, and I hope to be receiving a copy from Canon Press to do an early review before it goes live. Um, we'll see hopefully I get that copy. Um, and maybe that's another one that will make the list. I've loved pretty much everything Michael and Nan have done. The other thing I would say before we jump into this episode. If you have recommendations, books that you think, listen, man, I think this should be on your top shelf, then I would definitely encourage you, uh, send that my way. Let me know what your favorite books are. You can leave those in the comments, on the website. You can send me an email, however you want to get in touch, Twitter, Facebook. Love to hear your feedback. What are your favorite books? What's on your top shelf? So in this episode, I want to start with one of my favorite books of all time even though I just read it. It's one of my favorite books of all time. And it is titled Atomic Habits, and it is by James Clear. The subtitle is this, quote, Tiny Changes, Remarkable Results, An Easy and Proven Way to Build Good Habits and Break Bad Ones. The book was published in 2018, and it is 264 pages in length. You can get it on Amazon. You can get it in hardcover. You can get it on Kindle, and you're going to save a lot of money if you go through Amazon. I think the local Barnes & Noble, the hardcover edition was $34, Amazon, 11 bucks. So you can find out more about the author as well at jamesclear.com. We'll provide a link for that in the show note. exactly how it sounds James and then clear, C L E A R.com. Be sure to check that out. I haven't spent a ton. Of time on the website, but it's probably worth checking out. Now, overall, I want to give my overall impression of the book and a couple reasons why it's helpful as well as my overall rating for the book. The book, I would say, is helpful because it does a couple things really, really well. Number one, it gives a scientific, psychological, and step-by-step breakdown of the habit formation process. I found this very insightful. It helps you understand a little bit more about why humans do what we do. And if you can understand that process, you can start to amend your behavior, get rid of bad habits, and try to hopefully instill some good habits in your life as well. So it takes a good in-depth look, looks at a lot of research, but it does so in a very clear way. Number two, it synthesizes, atomic habits, synthesizes a wide variety of complex research on habit formation into a very clear, easy-to-understand format without being unnecessarily scholarly. So in opposition to this, I would kind of put Charles Duig's book, The Power of Habit, which is a fantastic book. I've read it. I own it. But it is more cumbersome. Um, I found myself getting lost in a lot of the research. Um, On Tuesday, the researcher had a ham sandwich Later that afternoon, he recognized habits were different in mice. I'm like, dude, I don't care. Just get to the point. We have limited time and my interest has only peaked for so long. Again, James Clear will take a lot of the principles in Dewey's book and he really synthesizes them and brings them home in a way that's really, really simple and easy to understand. James also has a lot of examples Um, in each chapter so you can identify with real-world situations in which habits um, were shaped, changed, etc. But again, I think it's just more helpful and more James Clear. Number three, I think it will encourage you. This book will encourage you to change your habits by giving you a simple, easy-to-implement blueprint that works with the grain of human nature rather than against it. So it's encouraging. One of the things, and I'll mention this in a little bit, but what, before I read this book, I was like, look, there's a lot of areas in my life I'm kind of stuck. Um, I, I've set goals. I haven't changed. I want to change, but I haven't changed. And I don't really want to read a book about habits because habits are hard to change. I like the discipline, blah, 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 blah. I read the book and I was like, man, I'm actually encouraged to get to work in my life. I've implemented some of those things. And I feel in about a month of doing it, and implementing some of these practices, man, I feel a million times better. So that's another reason, um, again, just helpful encouragement. I think it's also helpful for Christians because so often we think, well, I just need to be more spiritual. I just need to be more disciplined. You know, but Bible reading, prayer, these things, they really come down to habits, how you structure your environment. So you can apply these things to really anything. If you're a pastor, how you study the word. If you're a carpenter, it could be how you organize your shop. Habits that you can implement to run a better crew at the office, whatever you want to do, whatever you want to change, this book is going to help you and it's going to encourage you. I think that's huge. So number four, this book, Atomic Habits, shows you how the power to change is found in small or what Clear calls atomic habits, right? Change is not found primarily in momentous earth-shattering moments. We all think it is. He's an overnight success. Nobody is really an overnight success. And if they are, they're generally a one-hit wonder, not a long-term success. So this book is going to teach us how small changes, small habitual changes can lead to tremendous results in the long run. Not immediately, but in the long run. Number five, Atomic Habits reveals how establishing a system, this is going to be crucial, reveals how establishing a system of good habits tends to build compounding long-term results. So, we're going to see that it's really not just about one habit, but it's about a system of 1% changes in your life. That if you follow them long enough, you're going to start seeing compounding, like banking, compounding interest and long term results. They seem to snowball, habits do. So, we'll unpack a little bit about this in the show. Number six, and most importantly, this book I have found to be insanely practical. Like, I've applied the principles to my life especially this last month or so. And it has just been tremendously helpful. I've seen habits that I could not shake for years. I've implemented some of these changes. I felt more confident. I feel like a lot of that confidence comes when you can finally dig out of the rut of bad habits, right? You can become the most effective version of yourself possible. And really, as James says, it's not about being perfect. It's not about I got to this goal. Now I'm happy. It's really about being on the right trajectory and becoming the kind of person that you want to be. That's what this habitual systemic change is about. Again, I've applied to my life. It's very, very helpful. So overall, how would I rate this book? I would give it five out of five stars. I highly recommend it. It's amazing. You should buy it. You should read it. You should implement it. Whether you're a homeschool mom and you're having issues with Staying on top of your curriculum, whether your kids are too distracted in the home, whether you have problems with smartphone usage and you're just wasting too much time sifting through ESPN or Facebook or social media or Twitter, no matter what it is, this book is going to help you. Now, in this episode, I want to break down some of the key themes and the most important insights that I found from Atomic Habits. The book is organized around four major sections. Number one, the fundamentals of Atomic Habits, so an introduction, and then the Fundamentals of Atomic Habits, number two, and really these are four sections, so two, three, and four, you have the Laws of Habits. So he goes through each of the individual four Laws of Habits, then he closes the book with Advanced Tactics, which is one section, and there is also an Appendix. So we are going to begin today by discussing the Fundamentals of Atomic Habits, and then we'll look a little bit at each of the four laws of habitual change and behavior change. So the fundamentals of atomic habits. An all too common tendency is to think that successful living is about drastic changes in big center stage moments. And these then lead to monumental lives and world shaping contributions that we remember most throughout human history, right? So we think that Steve Jobs, one night in his garage, he pounded like 16 packs of Mountain Dew. He had a moment of inspiration and boom, the Mac was created and he became famous the next day and everything took off and everything was perfect. Right? We think that's how these great men in history got to be where they are. And it's simply not true. If we look at it, their lives are the result of thousands of small decisions, choices, and we'll see systems of habits that they've established in their own life. But because we tend to have this sort of think big mindset, We too easily get sucked into thinking that big change, big action is what we need in our lives, right? This can lead to a never ending cycle of making outrageous goals on Monday, turning the afterburners of our passion on. We sprint out of the gates and then by Tuesday, we are completely reverted back to our former lives filled with boredom and lackluster progress, right? We're pounding Rocky Road ice cream because I tried for a whole day. To lose weight, to reshape my body, to get leaner, to get fit, to be more productive at work—I failed day two. I quit. Right? You've all been there, I'm sure. We all have. We we watch a food documentary, right? Supersize me. We embark on a radical juice fast, kale-only diet, right? Then three days in, over a cocktail of burnout and depression and Thousand Island dressing, which they call a special sauce. It's not special buy that crap at the grocery store. We then have surpassed Morgan Spurlock for the number of supersized meals eaten in a single day. And by Wednesday, we're actually fatter than we were before. Right? We storm out of the gates. We hit the blocks hard. We crash harder. And we make little progress in any meaningful direction. Trust me, I've been there. I'm sure you have as well. Often, what James Clear points out is we then attribute our poor strategy regarding habits as simply cruel fate, right? We have a bad strategy. We just think it's about sheer discipline and sheer willpower, right? Rex Kwando, you think somebody wants to take a roundhouse kick to the face and these bad boys? No. No, they don't. But listen, it's not about being Rex Kwando, guys. It's about making small changes, right? We feel stuck. We feel hopeless. We feel incapable of meaningful change but there's a way out, right? So closely connected to this tendency to look for big moments of inspiration or radical transformation, we also need to focus less on a macro view of the world and more about the micro view of our own lives, right? Because this is how the world would change anyway, like individual lives getting changed, right? Your life getting changed, right? You've probably all seen, or at least a lot of you have seen the Jordan Peterson video where this like leftist woman is like, "Jordan, we need to change the world now and tomorrow, and we need global change." And he's like, "Well, your own life is a disaster, lady. Why don't you go home and like organize it? Like if you can't control yourself, if you can't rule yourself, why are you so arrogant to think you could change the world?" And so, I've talked about that in this show. Go home, get your household in order. That's exactly what James Clear's path is really about. Like go get your habits in order. Like you can't change the world. You can't change national politics, right? But what you can do is you can go get your household in order. Again, this book is phenomenal at taking principles, goals, things like that and helping you. How do I actually implement those in my life in a way that's going to be effective, right? Again, our effort has to be on our habits, the small repeated actions that amount to big change over time, right? As Solomon might say, I say to you right now, consider the hand. And people often think that change is about insane levels of self-discipline, as I mentioned before, when in reality, it's about building a system and an environment that make good habits virtually automatic, and it makes bad habits exceedingly hard. It puts a lot of tension between us and bad habits. So if you want to change, start with your own life and start by ordering your schedule. Start with meal planning. Start setting up daily liturgies and routines for your family right? Create a flow inside your own home. Start tracking your activities, food, exercise, et cetera. Start tracking your spending levels. Focus on the process. Love the process. If you do this, results will follow, right? That's going to be the beauty of what we unpack and what really James Clear talks about in the show. Think about somebody like Nick Saban, right? Think about, you know, Nick Saban, uh, Alabama football coach, roll tide. Had to throw that in there for my friend, Brian. Roll Think about Nick Saban. He comes off the Belichick coaching tree. They both were at the Cleveland Browns together. And what are these guys about? They're all about process, right? The system. Know your role, fulfill your task, do your job, right? Do it a certain way. Do it right every time. You get all these dudes on a football team doing the same thing at the same time together. Everybody's doing their job. What do you know? These guys win championships, right? That's just what they do right? So it's going to be that sort of thing. Fall in love with the process. Fall in love with the system. Results will follow. Bill Walsh was famous, 49ers coach, a little football metaphor. I know some of you hate the NFL and I do too, but I don't know. It used to be cool. And these metaphors are kind of cool. Bill Walsh, he said, listen, focus on your process, focus on the system, do everything right. The scoreboard will take care of itself. We could say the same thing Work out, track your calories, track your exercise, pound hard, grind every day, eat good food, right? What's going to happen? You don't even need to look at the scale, right? The results are going to come. But the problem is, what do we do? We scale watch, right? We work out for five minutes. We look at the scale. haven't changed. I quit. Too hard, not doing it, right? So again, love the process, love the system. Be that kind of person that loves the system. Right, what I have found during this time of national shamdemic, right, everybody wear a mask, I'm putting a foreign substance in your body, you don't know what it is, violation of human rights, et cetera, right, what I have found is that it is incredibly cathartic with all these national global events going on, it is incredibly cathartic to just focus on what you can control, man, right? This is, if you've ever heard of the AA curriculum, Alcoholics Anonymous, it's a very similar principle, right? The serenity prayer, like help me control what I can control. Focus on that. If things are out of my control, I should not focus on that, right? We've had this Afghanistan debacle, and I was talking to a friend about it, and my friend shared a really powerful, important truth that amplifies this message. This is whether. The text message that my friend sent said, It said, I would put the news on a limited listen unless you can affect change. If you can't, move on. The only reason to watch would be to teach your sons and future generations about the history they are living. Right? My friend is absolutely right. Most of us can't do anything about national elections. You can't do anything about foreign military policy, which sucks, by the way. But what we can do is we can help build atomic habits that lead to remarkable results over the long haul. So one of the key principles that I want to check into now from James Clear's book, Atomic Habits, is this. We need to think small. We need to think of life in terms and habit change in terms of 1% changes that are going to stack up and pave the way to success. 1%. Can you give me 1% improvement in certain areas? Right? So this is the alternative to that whole think big approach, right? We need to think small. And so James lays out the central, really central principle of the book. A system of small, seemingly insignificant habits is the basis for lasting long-term success. Let me say it one more time. A system of small, seemingly insignificant habits is the basis for lasting long-term success. In other words, if you want your life to be better, like you want more joy, you want to be more effective, more productive, you want to do more of your best work it is about making 1% improvements wherever and whenever you can. This is what atomic habits are all about. Instead of looking for that one unicorn moment, right? I'm going to move to the right place. I'm going to take this job. I'm going to marry this person and then everything is going to be perfect. Right? That moment doesn't exist. Right? You're not gonna have a moment. I'm gonna apply for this job. I'm gonna work on this project. And then tomorrow, overnight success. Boom, Rolling Stone magazine calls me. We love your song. He's off to his room to write the hit song Alone in His Principles. Eerie PA. If you get that reference, kudos to you. Right? What we're trying to do is we're trying to stack one percent changes together, small changes that seem by themselves insignificant, until they start resounding with massive results. Right, like the humorous Johnny Cash song, one of my favorite songs, by the way. How did Johnny Cash and his buddy build a Cadillac? Well, they worked on the GM assembly line, folks, if you know this song, and they built their Cadillac from stolen parts, one piece at a time. Now, to illustrate this point, Clear tells the story of British cycling. In 2003, British cycling was, well, (laughs) quite honestly, horrific manufacturers of bikes did not want to let the team use their bikes, right? Not that they were donating the bikes. They didn't even want the team using their bikes because they thought it would reflect poorly on the brand. Like, you're so horrible, you're going to make our, our bikes look bad. But what happened? They hired a new coach. This new coach took over and he implemented a strategy of making 1% improvements. Right? He did not change anything drastically by itself. He just had a long, long list of small changes that they were going to make as a team. So they hired a diet and exercise coach. They had surgeons come in, surgeons, to teach the team how to properly wash their hands. Right, That seems small. It seems insignificant. But the coach reasoned that if we could keep our team healthy and keep them from being sick, then they would be at top performance for longer periods of time. They hired sleep experts, right? They got the right pillows. They ordered bed sheets for the team that were the most comfortable and aided in sleep. They ordered different uniforms, more aerodynamic. They treated their tires so they would grip the road better. They adjusted PSI in the same tires. They changed their positions on the bikes based on anatomical research and filming the racers, right? None of these things by themselves would have made that big of a difference, right? They took their racing trailer and they painted it white so that they could see dust. And if it got dirty, they could clean it to help them see the dirt and debris better, dirt and debris that would affect brake pads and things like that. Small things, tiny molecules even. But what happened? Well, as they started to address these things, not only did these small 1% changes start to add up to vastly different results, I think it also changed the mindset. When you're a kind of person that's like, we're going to focus on the details and we're going to do everything right. Well, that's sort of what the winning attitude is all about. Well, consider what the results were. Not immediate, but they were pretty quick when you look at it from a long-term perspective. Just five years after the new coach took over, British cycling became a powerhouse. During a 10-year span from 2007 to 2017, they won 178 world championships, 178, and they won 66 Olympic or Paralympic gold medals, 66 gold medals. This is insane. They won five times. They'd never won before. They won five times at the Tour de France in that period, and it is widely considered the winningest run in cycling history. So what was the secret? Well, the secret was implementing 1% changes. As Clear asks, why do small improvements accumulate into such remarkable results? And how can you replicate this approach in your life? He goes on to say, it is so easy to overestimate the importance of one defining moment and to underestimate the value of making small improvements consistently on a daily basis. Too often... We convince ourselves that massive success requires massive action. Specifically, Clear shows how small habits have a way of compounding when they are practiced over time. They work like compound interest in a bank. The more you practice them for a longer duration, the more they yield more and more positive results. This is true for good habits and unfortunately, it's also true for bad habits, right? They tend to snowball. As Clear points out later in the book, habits, both good and bad, tend to stack on each other and accumulate momentum. One Amazon purchase leads to a string of purchases. Waking up early and heading to the gym leads to other good choices that day. Save a little money here, save a little money there, and before you know it, you become a thrifty person with money in your bank account. Ultimately, we need to realize that success is the product of daily habits. It is not once-in-a-lifetime transformations. Delayed returns. One of the biggest problems with the way we think about habits is what Clear calls the plateau of latent potential. Bear with me, I'm going to unpack this. It's just a fancy way of saying that the habits that we implement on a daily basis have delayed returns. If you work out today and eat well, well, you're still overweight tomorrow. If you save money by packing your own lunch rather than eating out today, well, if you were broke before, you're still broke tomorrow. Because results take time to accumulate, we often downplay, dismiss, or completely miss the effect that poor habits can have in our life, right? They don't produce bad results right away. And on the other hand, we tend to drop habits that are good. We drop them too soon because we don't see results soon enough. Right, One of my favorite commercials of our all time, you got a black guy in a gym and he looks pretty overweight. He's got an old style 80s sweatsuit on. He gets on the treadmill. He like run walks for like 30 seconds. He gets off. He runs around the gym. He steps on the scale. It hasn't changed. So he quits and he leaves. Right? That's us. So when we think about it, no single habit or choice seems to make much of a difference, particularly not immediately. What we need to recognize, according to Clear, is that our outcomes are a lagging measure of our habits. As he writes, in order to make a meaningful difference, habits need to persist long enough to break through this plateau. For example, if you're going to see change in your body weight or shape, it really takes at least a few months of consistent eating and exercise before you can visually detect any change in the mirror or on the scale. Most people will give up long before they would even come close to seeing results. Now, biblically speaking, this is really just the principle of reaping and sowing that is found throughout Proverbs and in passages like Galatians 6, verses 7 through 10. Uh, That passage reads this way, Be not deceived, God is not mocked. For whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. For he that soweth to his flesh shall reap of the flesh corruption, but he that soweth to the Spirit shall of the Spirit reap life everlasting. And let us not grow weary in well-doing, for in due season we shall reap if we faint not. As we have therefore opportunity, let us do good unto all men, especially unto them who are of the household of faith." Quote. So the whole concept here is of faithful small actions that you take repeatedly over time, like the call is to stay faithful in doing good and that in time you will receive a harvest of results. Now, what does it mean? It says, in due season, we shall reap. Well, it means that you don't reap right away. The good things you sow today, you don't see a return today. It might be next year. It might be five years down the road. Right? But the key to living a happy, fruitful, blessed, wise life is to hearken to this principle that reaping will come years, maybe, after your sewing begins. It's long-term. As Claire points out, this means we need a daily schedule. We need an environment that helps us. And we need to structure our life in a way that is a coherent system of well-aimed habits. If you follow your system, results will inevitably follow. Stop focusing so much on the outcomes and focus on the inputs. If you want to be a writer, for example, structure your day around writing several hours a day in the morning when your creative powers are at their peak, right? This is the habit. If you do this every day at the end of six months, you'll have a few chapters completed, right? That's your result. In a year, perhaps a book will be completed. And maybe after a decade of implementing this system, you'll be producing a few decent books. And if you're really lucky, you'll have one really good one. Systems versus goals. The solution that Clear lays out to all of this, and I believe he nails it right on the head, is to focus on a system of habits rather than goals, right? Despite the massive emphasis on goal-oriented thinking today, having goals can actually be part of the problem for a lot of us. Why is that? Well, because by themselves, goals cause us to focus on results or outcomes rather than the actions we need to take to achieve them, right? We say things like, I want to save for retirement. I want to lose weight. I want to write a book or I want to start a small business. But by themselves, simply having goals is going to get us absolutely nowhere. What we need if we're going to be successful is to attach those goals to a system of habits that can turn those goals into reality. And James will show us how to do this. When they're doing their job, goals are important. They help us decide which kind of systems we need to implement. Goals are like destinations while systems are like turn-by-turn directions. How many of you are like me? Like you've set out, you've had your goals, but you grow depressed about your life in general. You lack confidence because you never achieve any of these goals. I want to quit porn. I want to lose weight. I want to gain more muscle. I want to run a marathon. I want to save money. But you never really do it, right? You have these goals, but you don't have systems. And so you never do it. And so you just feel depressed about your life. And that's what happens oftentimes when we are trained to focus merely on our goals. I want to lose weight. But what we don't do is focus on the process, right? The individual habits will actually lead to a leaner, more muscular version of yourself, right? As I said before, we spend all of our energy scale watching, focusing on outcomes, instead of tracking calories, planning meals, weighing our food, honing your weightlifting routines, et cetera. Focus on the system, right? This is the main thing that Clear points to in this section, What we need to do is fall in love with our system, and this becomes a bulletproof way to ensure long-term change, right? As Clear will say, quote, goals are about the results you want to achieve. Systems are about the process that lead to those results. So if you want to see results, focus on your systems and on your processes. Now, Clear also gives a few other reasons why systems are better than goals, and a lot of this comes from Scott Adams, actually. Um, He had a pretty good book. I can't remember the title of it. Scott Adams was a creator of the comic strip Dilbert, and he wrote a lot about systems and goals. Why are systems better than goals? Well, number one, because how many people, if you focus on your system and you don't even have a goal, but you focus on the right system, you'll probably still meet that, you know, whatever your goal might've been, right? If, if you're a runner and maybe your goal isn't to compete in the Boston Marathon, but every day you get better, you focus on your training, your nutrition, et cetera, You go through progressive training, right, progressivization, and you are going to get better day by day. One day, you might be able to run in the Boston Marathon. Might not have been your goal in any any event, but here you are, right? Number two, winners and losers have the same goals. Have you ever noticed that? And Again, I'm thinking about football, thinking about baseball, pretty much everybody at the beginning of the year, right? Unless you're like, I don't know, the Bengals. But pretty much everybody at the beginning of the year sets out and is like, we want to win the Super Bowl. But is it the goals that set the winners and losers apart, right? They have the same goal. So it doesn't seem that way. Number three, achieving goals is only a momentary change, right? I want to get to this weight on the scale. And so what do you do? You do a juice fast. You get down to the weight. You do some radical diet. You spend $500 a month on some radical diet to get you there. You're shredding muscle in the process, by the way. It's not actually all that healthy. You haven't changed your lifestyle. You get to your goal the moment you get there. Maybe you were losing weight for an event, a wedding, something special. You know, you do it. You get down to that weight. It's over. The goal's over. And now your change is probably gone, right? You achieved your goal. It's over. But if that whole time you'd been establishing a system and you fell in love with the system, you're more likely to keep that system. Number four, again, number four, why our system is better than goals? Because goals can lead to discontent, right? Goals-oriented thinking is like, when I get there, I can be happy. And it's always future-oriented. On the other hand, when you're falling in love with your system, you can be happy today. Like, so I started, one of the habit changes I started w- was all this, like food tracking, exercise. I, in the last, I don't know... Ten years, I probably gained about twenty pounds, right? And you know, I was like uh, every every week of like every year, I'm like, hey, I gotta lose some weight, whatever. Somebody passed me an IPA, <laughs> right? And I was just tired of that, you know. So I read this book, and I was like, okay, I'm gonna implement these changes, these systems. Um, and I started to do that, and I, you know, like, I'm thinking like week one, like I didn't really lose any weight, but I was so much happier, right? Because I was in the right trajectory. I was happy with the system. Like I'm tracking it like five days in, like I've hit my goal every day. That feels good. you feel more confident. You did what you were supposed to do. You're focused on the process, right? And that's before you've even had results. You can be happy with goals. You're not happy until you achieve the goal. And the minute you've achieved the goal, it's like, well, that actually wasn't that cool. Right? So that can be the problem. And then the last problem, number five with goals Is it goal orientation generally leads to a yo-yo effect, right? Again, we've kind of talked about this, but once the goal is completed, we bottom out. How many people do you know who are like fad dieters for life? I did the whole 30. Now I'm paleo. I lost 45 pounds. Then I gained 60. Then I lost 60. Then, you know, it's like back and forth. Like you can't even keep track. And we're that way often because we have this goal orientation. We haven't built a life around systems. With a system, again, you can be satisfied whenever you're following it. You enjoy the process. Likewise, you find confidence and pleasure in being on the right trajectory. That's huge here. You're on the right trajectory, not necessarily that you've arrived at any one point along the way. So habits, James says, are like the atoms of our lives. Each one is fundamental and is a unit that contributes to your overall improvement. At first, these tiny routines seem insignificant. But soon they build on each other and fuel bigger wins that multiply to a degree that far outweighs the cost of the initial investment. They are both small and mighty. This is the meaning of the phrase atomic habits. It is a regular practice or routine that is not only small and easy to do, but also the source of incredible power, a component of the system of compound growth. End quote. So that's going to be really huge. Next thing I want to unpack that James goes through. So we just kind of did the fundamentals. But he also talks about habits and how they shape identity. Now, I think this is so important because I'd actually never thought about this before I had read the book. But James will say that there's really three layers of behavior change, right? There's, There's three layers. And what are those layers? Number one, outcomes, right? We change outcomes, habits to change outcomes. Number two, processes. We've talked a little bit about that. But number three, identity. And this is really where James camps out for a while and it's really, really helpful, right? People usually start, where do we start, right? We start with our outcomes. What do you want to change? I want to lose weight. Like that's an outcome. Where do you want to change? I want to be wealthier. That's an outcome, right? You're focusing on habits that are specifically tied to outcomes. That's one layer again, what we really need to do is we kind of need to focus on the other two things, process and identity, if we want to experience lasting change. So rather than simply focusing on our outcomes, we need to consider the ways in which our habits reflect the kind of person we want to become and the process that will get us there. Right? So James says this, he says, your behaviors are a reflection of your identity. Man, that's powerful. Your behaviors, whatever you do on a daily basis is a reflection of your identity. What you do is an indication of the type of person that you believe you are, either consciously or non-consciously. Right? We may be lazy and we don't think about it. Right? I think of the proverb, even a little child is known by what he does, not by what he says about himself, but by what he does. So also, when you're thinking about actions you take in any given moment, this, this can really help you. You can ask yourself questions like, what would this kind of person do in this situation? What would a financially responsible person do in this situation, right? You want to get better with money? Think like a financially responsible person. And, and you would know the answer to that. What would they think like? Because, you know, you're picking up books. You know, you read Rich Dad, Poor Dad, and you're like, well, that's not how, ri-. you know, rich people don't go around just blowing their money on everything, generally. If they do, they don't stay rich very long. So what's the mindset of a rich person? What's the mindset of a wealthy person who's built wealth that he can pass on to generations for the sake of the kingdom, right? Well, what, what's the mindset of a healthy person, right? How can I embody that mindset and what kind of choices would, would I make in this situation? And I think this is so helpful because it's, it forces you to ask the question, my habits are, they're loud and clear megaphone about what kind of person I want to be. But you have to look honestly at your habits and say, what are they saying about me? What are my habits saying about me? You should recognize that every time you act, every time you implement a habit, you are casting a vote for the future kind of person you want to become, right? That really helped me when I was thinking about, um, you know, just daily things, being more organized in my work, right? So that I could get to my most important work, decluttering my workstation, right? Scheduling emails so that i can you know do emails from this time to this time scheduling calls not just being a pinball bouncing around on a daily basis right this is about your identity it's not just about changing behavioral outcomes this is about who you are as a person right this is so pivotal so as we evaluate and you evaluate your habits you have to consider what kind of person do you want to be what kind of person do you want to be so often There's this view we have of ourselves in our head. There's a story we tell ourselves. And then there's the actual us. And and I always think about this. I'm going to pick on them because it's the granola crunchy crowd that goes up into the mountains. And you see like fat, overweight dudes, and they're at the base of the mountain. And they've got like $10,000 worth of North Face gear on. And they're clear. I mean, they're overweight. They're clearly not a freaking climber right? But what? What? It, why do they buy all that clothes? You know, my kid hiked that entire mountain in like flip-flops. Why do you need $10,000 of North Face mountain hardware clothing with keen boots? You know, why do you need that? Well, I think it's fundamentally, they, they purchase that stuff because they want to make a statement about what kind of person they are. Like, I'm a fit mountain person. I'm just like Conrad Anchor who climbed Everest. I just climbed out of my tour egg. Right, they want to say something, but what's the reality? That's not who you are, man. Your body is saying, like, "Hey, you're a guy who likes to, you know, eat a lot of junk food and drink a lot of beer. You're actually kind of lazy, right?" Your body, and, and it's kind of it's kind of cool in this way. It's like your bank account. You can say, "Oh, I'm a frugal person." Why did you overdraft fifteen times last week? Uh, right. The, the view we have of ourselves in reality is not always the same, right? So this is so pivotal. As we evaluate our habits, we have to consider what kind of person do we want to become. James Clear says this, your identity emerges out of your habits. Wow. Your identity emerges out of your habits. Every belief, including those about yourself, is learned and conditioned through experience and through habit. Your habits are how you embody your identity. Man, this is so huge. So many Christians don't get this, but right from a Christian perspective, this is why liturgy in the worship service is so important. Liturgy shapes your whole life. People always say, yeah, but you do the same habitual things every week, all the time in the same order. Exactly, right? We confess our sins as we enter into the presence of God. We're forgiven. The pastor proclaims the absolution and the gospel pardon, right? We come into the presence of God. We hear the word of God. It cuts us up. We ascend and worship into the heavenlies. We give ourselves through tithes and offerings, and then we eat a meal with God on the mountaintop. You don't think this shapes your identity? You don't think this shapes who you are on a daily basis? Of course it does. Liturgies are simply structured routines or systems of habits that shape our identity, but get this, they shape our desires. They shape our loves. You say why I'm unfamiliar with that worship service. Good. Heaven is not like earth. And so heavenly God-centered worship is not like slapstick worship entertainment that we have today. Heavenly worship is not like a Cowboys football halftime show, right? Whatever you repeatedly do, hear me on this. Whatever you repeatedly do reveals who you are and it shapes who you are. If If your liturgy, your worship service, is light and slapstick and emotionalistic, if it's centered around a TED Talk, if it's an entertainment band performance, if it lacks biblical elements like confession, absolution, preaching of the word, communion, corporate singing and prayer, well then it is drastically going to shape what you love and who you are as a person. You're going to be a slapstick person. You're going to be driven by cheap emotionalism. You're going to be the kind of person that's just looking for a cheap TED Talk. You'll have nothing to give. You won't be interesting. You'll just know a few psycho- psychological life hacks. Right? Worship music, likewise, shapes us. It is vastly different to go to a church and listen to other people perform with smoke and lights that is vastly different in the way that it shapes you than when a corporate body sings psalms together. Vastly different. So again, just think about what your worship service is like. And it's, it's a loud cry about the kind of person that you want to become. Similarly, I would say this. If you want to change the kind of person you are, you have to change what you do on a daily basis. right? Too many of us as Christians have an enormous gap between what we say about ourselves and what we actually do, right? You like to think of yourself as this like holy spiritual person. And you're like, oh man, I'm just so deeply spiritual. So spiritual, in fact, that this weekend I binge watch all of Breaking Bad. I don't know what Roman says, but I know what Walt says, right? The identity we claim with our mouths and the one we claim with our habits is quite shockingly different. James Clear points this out, and he's going to say this is why we need to build awareness about who we are actually habitually as a person. So for example, you can say, I'm a devoted husband. But if you, man, if you commit adultery every other week, your actions prove that that claim is a lie. And let's hit a little closer to home. I love my wife. I'm devoted to my wife. I make Facebook posts on her birthday about why she's the best wife ever. And I look at porn six times a day. Man, your habits are lying about, about you they reveal you. You don't love your wife. You love yourself. You made a God of your own pleasure. Here's the deal. If you want to be a faithful Christian, it's going to mean that you cultivate habits of prayer, right? Actually building into your schedule, environment, all that stuff, prayer, Bible intake, participation in the life of the church, structuring your week around the Lord's day, a Sabbath rest this is going to drastically change your week right? Leading men, leading in family worship, investing financially in the kingdom and so on, right? If you want to live like the adopted sons of God, you need to carefully structure your life, your system, your environment, and your habits in such a way that forms you into the identity and shapes your desires of the adopted child of God that you are, right? One of the things that drives me nuts, this is, this is about the gap between habit And what we say about ourselves. Christians, all the time I hear this, I heard this pastorally, I don't know what happened to our children. You know, we took them to church once a week and we dropped them off at children's church. And then we took them to youth group where they hung out with other kids their own age. But uh, pastor, I don't understand. They're not Christians today. I mean, we took them to public school. They were indoctrinated in leftist thought. They had smartphones and they watched TikTok porn all day. And they had Snapchat where they sent dirty messages to other boys and girls their age. And we gave them cars and let them do whatever they want. And they binge watch TV all day. And they play video games for four hours a day, which even the communist Chinese know isn't a good idea. And boy, howdy, they're not Christians. So weird. Yeah, because your life is habitually not like a Christian's life at all. Look at church history. We are the anomaly. We are the pagan whores inside the church. And we need to reevaluate everything about our schedules, our habits on a daily basis. I think one of the most discouraging things that I've seen in the last 20 years in the church is the number of Christians where it's like you got to have some standard. Like if all you do, like you watch like 15 hours of freaking Breaking Bad this week, and you didn't read your Bible once, well, what kind of person are you going to be? You listen to Dave Chappelle. Endlessly, endless cycle of Dave Chappelle. No Bible. I mean, you're not going to live as a Christian. So again, we have to evaluate these things. Who's shaping you? What what trough are you eating at? Again, evaluate your habits. The next thing that James Clear is going to do, he goes into the science of habits, which is really going to shape the four laws for the rest of the book. We'll unpack these and then we will close. So the science of habits is broken down into four phases of habits. Some of you are going to be familiar with these. Number one, cue. Number two, craving. Number three, response. And number four, reward. So the point of understanding this process is is really it's essential when it comes to deleting bad habits from our lives and cultivating the positive ones, we need to understand how we as humans are wired, right? How do we tick? Like, what makes us do what we do? And if we can understand that, then we can work with the grain rather than having this attitude of like, oh, it's all sheer discipline. You know, people with good habits, it's just sheer discipline. Well, in reality, we can learn, as I said, to work with the grain of human nature so that we can affect meaningful change in our habits. It's still hard, right? It still takes discipline, but we don't need to make it any harder than it already is. So this four-part cycle is the psychological breakdown for why we do what we do. So let me give an example. Number one, we have a cue. So you're in the kitchen and you're like, boom, visual cue. I see a plate of peanut butter cookies on the counter. And I didn't have a desire before, but as soon as I see that visual cue there's a spark of desire and this is the craving. Like now I want those cookies. I'm thinking about what those cookies taste like. My stomach starts grumbling, right? We don't even necessarily have to think about it. This is just what happens. So it's interesting without this visual cue or reminder, you may not have ever even thought about peanut butter cookies at all, but they're there. You saw them. So you have a craving. So cue craving. And now what do we do? You have a response. You empty the plate. And then you're like, well, shoot. It's like, If you give a mouse a muffin or a cookie, a moose a muffin, give a mouse a cookie, well, then he's going to want a glass of milk. I mean, if I just ate that plate of peanut butter cookies. Now, listen to me. I'm talking from personal experience here. I just ate that entire plate of peanut butter cookies. I got to wash that down. Give me like a half a gallon of whole milk. Don't drink skim milk, people. Skim milk is just a lie from the devil that it's actually milk. It's just water. It's wicked. Whole milk. Raw milk, some of you will say. John Moody were here, he would say, raw milk. The response, like right, the, all these things tend to stack with each other, right? Cue, craving, response, right? And you have this immediate feeling of pleasure, and that's going to be your reward. You're like, oh, peanut butter in my mouth, milk, mmm, amazing. It's not amazing in about an hour, right? Each of the four laws of habit change is based on each of these parts of the habit loop. And now hopefully you can see how they're connected. So, right, cue brings about the first law. If you want to keep a positive habit, make it obvious, right? Make your cues obvious. Then you'll do those things more likely. And if you don't want to do a habit, make it invisible, right? This is first law, make it obvious or make it invisible. If you want to turn a positive behavior into a habit or something that you repeatedly do, then use what you know about visual cues and make it obvious. For example like me, I wanted to take more daily vitamins. Well, they were always buried in the cabinet. Do you think I was going to take them very often? No. So what did I do? I put them next to the bathroom sink where I see them every day. And it serves as a visual reminder to take them every day. What do you know? I created a visual cue. And so now I'm taking my vitamins and my essential fatty oils on a regular basis, right? If you want to work out regularly, another good idea might be to set your gym clothes by the front door and your keys each night before you go to bed so that when you go to the door, boom, there's my workout clothes. It reminds me that I need to work out today. Uh, Another one that I implemented that I read about in the book, I want to eat more fruit in my diet. I want to have positive snacks. So instead of having, man, my thing, you know what my thing was? My thing was we had like Hershey bars. I'll buy these Hershey bars and um, I'll just dip them in peanut butter. Man, it's the greatest thing on earth. Reese's peanut butter cups, stupid, stupid. I mean, I love them, but this is way easier and it's way bigger and it'll make you way fatter, sad. But here's the deal. I was like, okay, well, remove that. I'm not going to have the chocolate there. There's no peanut butter anymore there. So there's no visual cue. So honestly, I don't even think about it anymore. But what did I do? I set fruit on the counter. I was like, you know what? If I'm hungry, I should eat some baby carrots or I should eat an apple. And it seems really simple, but man, it actually really worked. We also have bananas on the countertop. And so, you know, I don't know about you, but I've never like binged on bananas. I don't know why that is. You'll be like, oh man, I came home today and I ate 14 bananas. I don't know what got into me. I just had a craving. Now I eat like one banana and I'm like, man, that's good. Whatever. I'm done. I'm going to go do something else. So anyway, that's a way that you can build that make it obvious or make it invisible in your life is going to help um, with establishing good habits, getting rid of bad ones. So speaking of getting rid of bad habits, again, the, the principle here is make it invisible. If you don't have cookies on the table, or better yet, in the house, then you're soon going to forget that they exist. If you identify every food that causes you to go over your caloric goals, as I did with peanut butter and chocolate, and also liquor and beer, well, just remove it, and then it's not visible, there won't be a cue, and then you won't have a craving. So it becomes actually really, really simple. Uh, one of the other ones, um, you know, please hear me, I wasn't getting drunk, but um, I, just every night I'd have like an IPA or, you know, I'd have a Coors latte. Uh, every night I just got in the habit where it's like I'll have like, you know, a drink or two of bourbon, whatever. Man, those calories add up. And I don't know if you know this, but it's actually a scientifically proven phenomenon. When you drink alcohol on an empty stomach, especially, it actually fuels your hunger. So here I was, you know, I'd have a beer I'd have some, you know, glass of bourbon every night. Boom, I'm hungry. Man, I got to have me some cheese nips if I'm hungry. Like this whole cycle, right? Habits build on each other. And so what I did is I was like, look, man, I, I got goals. And I, I've implemented this system. It's very simple. I'm going to identify the things where I struggle and I fail. I'm going to get rid of them. And so I just remove those things from my life, at least for the time being. Maybe they'll come back in a hidden closet somewhere for special occasions, whatever it is, don't care, whatever it takes to get the job done, right? So man, that's been huge. And I don't even think about it anymore because what would happen before is I would open the cabinet and there would be the liquor at the top and I'd be like, oh yeah, I remember my habit, Right. So, again, make it invisible. Remove the visible cue, and then there won't be a craving. Uh, One of the things that I'm most addicted to of all time, uh, it's a little bit like heroin. It's called my smartphone. Yeah. My smartphone is the devil. And I started to realize this. Lately, I've started to read about the negative effects of just constant stimulation from smartphones, how they rewire your brain with dopamine, all that. I'm like, man, I got to get free of this smartphone. This thing is like, it's like my slave overlord. It's just filled with crap. Tell me about how bad the world is and emails. It's my electronic leash for work, all this stuff. So here's the deal. If you get distracted by your smartphone, as I do, well, when you go into work, set aside times, like put it in a separate location where you cannot see it. You'll soon forget about it. So when I go to do my writing, I just give my phone to my wife. I set it on the counter, whatever, go in the other room. I forget it even exists. It's beautiful. Right. Why does your smartphone, it's always buzzing, right? That's why it always gets your attention. It has cues. And the real reality is when you look at the designers of the smartphone, like they knew about all these habits. They were like, look, how do we make the most addictive humanly possible thing ever in the whole world? Same thing with Big Macs, food. How do we make food just insanely addictive to people? Well, it's all been engineered to mess with your cue craving response, right? To form these habits. So again, make your phone invisible. Another thing we'll talk about in a minute, you can use downtime, at least on the iPhone. I'm sure Android has something similar, but you can use downtime. You program your phone so that it's in sleep mode at certain times of the day so that you can be more productive. Um, If you're like me and you start to realize like, I'll feel a vibration in my pant leg where my phone normally is. I'll be like, oh my gosh, my phone's buzzing. You ever reach down there and your phone's not even there? Yeah, I do that like every day, about every five minutes before I started changing that habit. Again, this is a really good thing. I've taken the apps off my phone. Uh, I no longer have Facebook or Twitter on my phone, so guess what? I'm not on them very often. That's really, really helpful. If you have a TV in a closed cabinet and you're sucked on binge-watching, well, then put it in a cabinet that closes. You don't see it all the time, put it in a closet, hide the remote, etc. If you don't see it, you're less likely to binge-watch every night when you get home. Cut off your cravings by removing the cue. Again, that's a way to make it invisible. That is the first law. Now, here's a couple other ways that you can deal with your cues that James lays out in the book. Number one, awareness, right? Awareness. So number one, what you can do is you can just be more aware about what you're actually doing. Like this is a way to break down that the view you have of yourself versus what you actually do. And James uses the example, I think it's like Spain and uh, train stations. And he said what they train their conductors to do is they call everything out visually. I have now accelerated to 45 kilometers per hour. I don't know how fast that is, but you know, they'll say the light is green. I am closing the doors, right? They started calling things out. And so what this helped them do, they saw like, it was crazy. It was like a 50 to 60% reduction in train operator accidents. Just because it forced them to recognize like and be aware of what their behavior was. So much of what we do is non conscious and this helps us be conscious. So one of the things I started doing, I've been packing for hunting season, and it's really helped me because what I've done is like when I'm going out the door, I'll say, I have my keys, I have my wallet, I have my hunting licenses, I have my muzzle loader, I have my boots, and I'll just talk like that. And um, it's been really, really helpful. I've forgotten Well, a few less things, and um, that's been really productive. Uh, The other thing is, if you want to think about habits that you have that are bad, well, call them out in the moment, right? I am about to put a cigarette in my mouth. Why am I doing this? And you'll realize, if you can start to practice a little bit of awareness, you'll realize that for a lot of people, this is enough to stop bad habits. You're like, yeah, why am I doing this right now? I don't even know. I'm just falling into this pattern. I don't even know. It doesn't even make sense. But it's good for us to recognize where our cues, particularly, and then our cravings are coming from. So again, awareness. Second thing that James points out is what he calls implementation behavior. So rather than saying vague, this is basically goal setting, but just for specific habit change. But like so many times I'm like, I want to lose weight. And then you don't do it right? Because that's a pretty generic flabby goal, right? Pun intended, flabby goal. What we need to do is use implementation behavior in the language that we can spell out, write down, et cetera, and use with ourselves regularly. For instance, we should say things like, I will do X behavior at Y place at Z time. So I will lift weights at such and such gym at 9 a.m. this morning. Right, wherever you want to do, whatever, you can fill this in. So, I'm going to do this behavior at this place at this time. At 7 a.m., I'm going to get out of bed. I'm going to get my cup of coffee. I'm going to sit on the front porch and I'm going to begin my time of Bible reading and prayer. Right, I will do this behavior at this place at this time. If you have specific targeted goals and habits, they're more likely to happen. Right, schedule them. You can set reminders to help you implement these things. Again, if you have something on the schedule, it's much easier to, you know, really hold yourself accountable to do it. Again, use your phones and stuff like that to help out. Number three, Number three, habit tracking. So again, we talked about it, but everybody thinks, oh, I'm eating pretty well. You know how I realized how much I was eating was when I started weighing food? And I was like, I just had like a tablespoon of peanut butter. And then it was my wife. She helped me with this. She was like, I'm not sure you're tracking that correctly, sweetheart. (laughs) Oh, yes, I am. She's like, you just had four cups of peanut butter, actually. Dang it. No wonder I'm gaining weight. Right? Or we can say to ourselves, I'm pretty thrifty. Yeah, my credit card bill was 10 grand this month, but uh, pretty thrifty. Yeah, I'm in the hole. I'm in the hole. I'm in debt. Yeah, yeah, we did pretty good. Right you have these feelings about how you're doing, but they're not often based in reality. So when you actually start to track things and see where you spent your calories, your money or your time, it's going to tell a different story. So what we need to do, and this is what habit tracking helps us do, is correct perception versus reality when it comes to our habits. So for example, a few tools that I have used or still use. Number one, mint. Um, I like mint. Some people use "you need a budget," either one. Uh, depending on your taste, whatever you like, can be really, really helpful. So it helps you track your money on a continual, ongoing basis. You can use for fitness. I use my Fitness Pal. Again, you can track your calories. You can track your macros, right? Protein, fat, and carbohydrates. You can track your weight over time. You can do all sorts of things with that free app. It's really awesome. It's probably the Chinese trying to figure out how fat Americans are, I guess, but whatever. Use that to your advantage, America, right? So use these tools. There's a lot of tools. Man, I remember back in the day, we didn't have smartphones. You know what we had to do? We had to like add up calories and paper. Paper, like calligraphy on papyrus or something. I don't know what was going on. Kids, you got apps today, man. It's so easy. So use them to your advantage. Next thing is design your environment. So this has been huge for me. Again. Removing clutter from your workspace, removing all the crap food from your kitchen. If your environment is tailored for you to succeed, then you will succeed. Right? If you got one of those smart houses, you know, set your lights to go off at a certain time. Get in bed. Uh, James tells the story of a guy who, I don't know, there's a device you can buy to hook up to your router where at like 9 p.m. it turns off. You ain't streaming nothing. You're going to bed. I guess you could play solitaire in your room with your cards with the lights off. It's probably not good for you, right? So again, just setting up your environment so that you succeed. If you're an alcoholic, you wouldn't have like seven fifths of whiskey on the counter every night because you would see it and you'd be tempted. So you remove it, you throw it away. Very simple. Again, there's a lot of details in his book about how you can tailor your environment. One thing he does bring up under tailoring your environment is one space, one task, right? This has been really helpful for me. When you go into your office, this is, this is me, when I go into my home office, that is your workstation. When you are there, you are working. That is what you do. You are not checking Twitter. You are not checking Facebook. You are not browsing ESPN to see how horrible your Rockies are. They're bad, man. They're really bad. They're not as bad as like the Diamondbacks, but they're bad. It's not good. It's not pretty. Right? But when you're at your desk, that's not what you do. When I'm on my front porch, at least in the summer, that's where I read my Bible and pray. I'm not checking Twitter. I don't do that there. That's not in that location. Leave your phone inside, bring your Bible, bring your coffee, read, pray, etc. Boom. One space, one task. When you're in your bed, that's not where you check Twitter. It's where you make love to your wife. That's where you sleep, right? One space, two tasks. Okay, I broke the rule, but still, one space, one task. Right? The problem is what we do is we're on our couch and we're checking our phone. We're in bed and we're checking our phone. Right? And it just becomes where our life is overwhelmed by distraction at every turn. Dopamine rush. It's killing us, America. So don't do that. One space, one task. Right? Remove the cues for your bad habits. And again, put things front and center that cue the good behavior. Uh, One thing I've done just by way of example, I put water bottles around the house. Um, I, set, I have one main water bottle, uh, 30 ounces, 32 ounces. I set it by the sink, and I fill that up every evening, and I set it by my coffee so that when I wake up, uh, it's ice cold, best thing in the morning, wake up, pound some ice cold water. Again, I put my toothbrush on the counter where I can see it, not down in the drawer. Workout clothes I put out next to the bed. My wife will tell you that I put them next to the bed because that's where I took them off and I left them, okay? I'm sorry. I'm not perfect, but at least the next morning, they're still there and I look at them and I only have one set of workout clothes, so it's not like it's too messy, right? Set alerts on your phone, et cetera. Design your environment for success. That was law number one, make it visible or make it invisible. Law number two, make it attractive, make it unattractive. The goal is to make good habits more attractive and bad habits less attractive. The admitted problem here is that bad habits often seem really great in the moment. Man, I would sure like to take a pump of cocaine right now, right? But that's going to leave negative effects later, like your heart stops beating when you're 27. That's not good. Meanwhile, good habits feel bad in the moment, but lead to feeling better later. So we need to be aware of this. One of the tools we can use is what James Clear calls habit stacking. It works like this. after I you know, do a habit that you enjoy, then I will do a habit that I need to establish in my life. So for me, it's work like this. After I get my morning coffee, I will begin my daily Bible reading. So you're really just stacking a good habit with a harder habit to establish. Man, I love my coffee. Mm, So good. But now I've just built in, like, grab your coffee, grab your Bible, out to the porch, you go. Right? Very simple. Stack those habits. Changing your culture. Like, this is another huge one. So this is under make it attractive, make it unattractive. You need to surround yourself with people whose desired behavior reflects the habits that you're trying to implement. Likewise, you need to avoid people whose habits are the ones you're trying to delete from your life, right? So part of the problem, and James is, I mean, again, this is biblical wisdom. Paul says this bad company corrupts good character. Part of the problem is we're like, man you know, I want to not overeat and I want to not drink so much, but I hang out with all these people and that's all they ever do. Well, that's going to be bad. James even points this out. He said, we fail to realize how our habits come predominantly in many cases by imitation of those around us. You just use the word imitation? Like, have you been reading your Bible, bro? Right? How many times imitation, like imitate your leaders, the imitation of Christ. Right, we are creatures of meditation. Jesus tells us this, right? That's what discipleship is all about. So we need to be really smart about our culture. Again, if all your friends are constantly going out to eat, well, that's going to affect your life. Hey, man, do you want to go out to eat? No, dude, I have a budget. You need a budget. I have one, so I'm not going out to eat five times a week. That's a good way to be in the poorhouse. We're going to go home. and We're going to make some food that we bought with coupons or whatever. We stayed in our budget and we're going to do that because that's a smart thing to do. So again, just being conscientious of your culture. The other thing I would say about this is you need to find a culture where like whatever habits you're trying to establish, that's part of that culture, right? like, man, I want to be a Christian who is growing in godliness. I want to be a Christian who just loves worship, loves his family, is leading well, We need to find a church where the culture is that way. Like it's a big, important priority to lead well, to lead in family worship, et cetera. And then that's going to be so much easier for you to implement. You don't want your culture working against you on a continual basis. Next thing James points out, create a motivational ritual. So you want to do something you enjoy following a difficult habit. Again, this is similar to the first point that we made. After I send out these emails, I'll check ESPN and watch highlights from the Rockies losing. After I work out, I'll enjoy my breakfast in the dining room with my family. Next, reframe your perspective, right? Just thinking about things that on your list that like you think of as I have to, I have to do this. I have to do this. I have to do this. Change it to I get to. And I know this can sometimes seem cheesy and light, but the, here's the reality. You know, uh, he tells a story of a guy in a wheelchair and, and somebody had said to him like, oh man, I'm sorry that you have to be in that wheelchair. And he's like, have to. He's like, if I didn't have this wheelchair, I'd be stuck at home doing nothing. This wheelchair is my blessing, man. So uh, reframing the way that we look at things, practicing gratitude. Um, I've often thought this with different jobs that I've worked in the past, like, wow, I got a lot of menial tasks, but just thinking like some people don't have any tasks. And so I get to do these things today. God is going to use them to shape whatever kind of person he wants me to become. So change your perspective. Okay, so that was the second law, make it attractive or make it unattractive. Third law, make it easy or make it difficult. So if you want to establish a good habit, what you need to do is reduce the friction that it takes to complete that habit. If it's really hard to do something, you're not going to repeat that behavior. So one of the things that I did is I established a home gym in my house. This is actually pre-COVID, so it worked out pretty cool. But we started building a gym in our house because what we realized is it was really hard. Like we got three kids. I don't want to leave my kids in any like daycare thing at the gym. So my wife and I were continually bouncing and trying to make our schedules work. And if schedules didn't align properly, then what would happen is somebody would just basically have to skip their workout. Somebody would be frustrated, upset. Well, then we're like, well, we want to take our kids to the gym. Well, dude, do you know how expensive that is in the long haul? I can't afford that. You know, we got five of us. And so like, I can't afford a gym membership for every single one of us. But you know what I can do is I can invest that money Save and invest out money in a home gym. So, we bought a Rogue Fitness Rack. We got some used bumper plates, Olympic bars, curls, all this good stuff, right? You decline a bench that'll do incline as well. You got all this stuff in the garage. When we saved up. We bought a treadmill so we can do our high intensity interval training workouts. Perfect. Love it. So, now everybody in our home can work out. We can work out when we have free time. Guess what? It's a 24/7 gym as well. Although I will say this, if you are slamming bumper plates with your deadlift at 2 in the morning, I'm probably not going to be too happy. My wife would think it's cool. She loves deadlift. Anyway, that's a good way to reduce friction, right? You can just do something makes it easy. If you are the kind of person that's going to a gym, find one on the way to work right? Go to a church that's within 20 minutes of your house, right? If your church is an hour and a half away, uh, your consistency level might be, it might be pretty hard for you to keep that habit up. On the other hand, if you want to stop doing something habitually, what you can do is create friction, right? So again, I mentioned this before, but I deleted Facebook, right? Twitter from my iPhone. I don't have them on there anymore. It makes it a lot harder to check. And so I do it way less frequently just because it's too cumbersome. The other thing you can do is you can prime the environment. Again, with a home gym, the idea here is to keep it neat, schedule workout times with other family members, have your workout clothes ready to roll. Again, your environment is like ready, just where you can almost just fall into the habit, right? Declutter your workstation so it's more appealing to work there. You sit down, boom, I don't know what happened. I just started writing. Amazing, right? Set visual cues. I keep my tracking devices, Uh, with notifications on, they can alert you every day. Hey, dummy, you didn't track your calories. Why are you such a quitter? Don't quit. Dang it. And then you do it and you feel better. All right. So you can do that. One of the things that I do with my workstation, I have two computers, um, one for one kind of work and one for the other. And so what I will do, um, I used to just bounce between them. Heinous habit. Like I'm bouncing between two, well, four screens actually. Four screens and like all these open tabs and browsers and messages and boom boom boom. I like I do this all day long. I was like I can't do this. So what? I implemented a rule of one screen at a time. And oh my gosh, if I if I'm on one computer, the other one has to be on sleep mode. So much better. So much less distracted. I can focus on my work and do it a lot better. What else can you do? You can master the decisive moments. You can figure out which moments are decisive in keystone. Right? This is really important. For me, and you'll know in your own life, but for me, it's waking up early. If I get up at like five or six, generally between five and six, it just sets the whole day on the right pace. I get up early, nobody's awake, so I grab my coffee. I go out, I read my Bible, I pray, and then what I'll do is I'll automatically jump into like a 90-minute block of really intense creative work, usually writing, could be podcasting, Right? This just sets the motion of the day in the right direction from the very beginning. Right, The other one, uh, physically, that helps me is just meal planning and tracking caloric intake. If you plan your meals, the likelihood that you're going to have crap in your houses goes way, way down. Likelihood that you're going to just be in a hurry and you know, you're just going to eat some jar of peanut butter or whatever, it goes way, way down. Have your meals prepped and planned. I owe that all to my wife. She preps and plans all my meals. I've got my lunches in containers, they're ready to rock, throw it in the microwave, boom, eat your lunch. You didn't even have to think about it. This gets the last point on the third law. Automate your habits, right? Make technology work for you. Make your food prep work for you. Walk to the fridge, what am I going to eat for lunch? Boom, there's my lunch right there. Throw it, throw it in the microwave, heat that up, eat your lunch, pound your water, go back to work. Love it. Beautiful. Been automated. The more you can automate things so you don't have to think about them, They don't take a ton of effort the more you're likely to do better with them, right? Things like automatic savings withdrawals, scheduling reminders, auto-subscribing to vitamins, reminders from Mint or from You Need a Budget, right? Automatically turning off apps if you had downtime on your iPhone. These are ways to automate your habits, both for good and for getting rid of the bad things. Okay, the fourth law, and finally, make it satisfying, make it unsatisfying. So first, reinforcement, people brush their teeth. This comes from Charles Dewey, I believe, but some research about marketing early in the 20th century. People brush their teeth, not because it's healthy, but because it feels good to have a minty mouth. This was something that market researchers found when they were, again, marketing toothpaste. They found that toothpaste, before it had a minty flavor, nobody cared, nobody brushed their teeth all that much. And nobody really cared about the health benefits. But as soon as they added a crisp, minty flavor to toothpaste, people wanted to do it. It was this simple, satisfying feeling of a minty, fresh mouth. The same thing was said about Febreze. You know, Febreze works exceptionally well, but nobody cared. Originally, Febreze was a colossal failure. They would tell people in advertisements, you can make your house smell better. People did not care. Then they started advertising like a lady cleans her house and she sprays Febreze, and it's like, ooh, that enjoyable finishing touch of a job well done. And so it really became identified with, after I clean a room, I spray Febreze, and that's my, like, that's my reward. It smells good. People started buying Febreze. It flew off the shelves. The point is to make it enjoyable. Attach your habits to something that is rewarding. So again, what I'll do before I sit down to write, I get a fresh cup of coffee, Mmm, sitting down with a fresh cup. Isn't that amazing? When I finish, I get a warm, yummy, on Dave's Killer Bread egg sandwich with creamy cheese. I love that. I look forward to it every single day. It's amazing, right? You just, again, attaching something satisfying to your habits. Again, you can make saving fun. Every benchmark you get to, for instance, you can buy a desired product or service for me, right, I might, I don't know, let's say I want to save $10,000. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to save $10,000. Every time I make a saving, I skip a Starbucks coffee if I drink Starbucks, which I don't. Black Rifle Coffee, people. But I'm going to skip buying something. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to transfer a percentage of that immediately into an account on Mint. I'm going to transfer $5 to my Gucci Glock fund. Sorry, 1911 people. I want my gun to keep working. I'm kidding. I own both. Calm down. But soon, it's going to become pleasurable simply to play this game with yourself, right? You begin to associate something pleasurable, i.e. my Gucci Glock, with something previously not that desirable, i.e. saving money. But now you have a positive, satisfying experience. Again, you can use this with the habit tracker. Um, I do this all the time with Fitness Pal. Um, I track it and then I have a calendar where I just X out that day. And I don't know why, dude, but it feels good to X out the day and to look at a month and be like, dude, I made some progress. It's pretty awesome. Next rule that uh, for make it satisfying or unsatisfying, James says, really good one to implement and I have implemented. Never miss twice. Never miss twice. I'm the kind of person I never miss twice. So find joy in unbroken records. Um, That can be incredibly satisfying. Again, tracking your habits. If you miss once, no big deal. Don't beat yourself up. I missed the gym. I was tired. Um, you know, whatever happened. Don't make it a big deal. Just don't miss twice. Right? If you miss twice, it's like, ooh, I might be actually be slipping. Be the kind of person that never misses two days in a row. And then finally, accountability. This is the last point we'll make. Making failure painful and success pleasurable means that we often need accountability. One of the things that I did when I started this kind of new phase of taking care of my body a little bit better was uh, my 14-year-old son, who's an absolute beast in the gym, by the way. Uh, I took him with me and I was like, hey, we're going to work out together every day at this time. Boom. Do it. And originally, man, it's kind of funny because I was pretty, I guess, prideful about it. But I was like, yeah, he needs this. And you know how many days I was like sitting in my office and my son's standing in the doorway and I was like, hey, what's up? He's like, well, you said it too that we work out. And I was like, oh yeah, I'll be there in a minute. And he goes, yeah, I know, but you you know you said too and I know you're a man of your word. And I'm like, oh crap, <laughs> I'm going to have to show up. I'm going to have to commit because I have somebody depending on me and it's my son. And when he grows up, he's going to imitate and you know, he is imitating now, but he's, you know, the results are going to be seen when he grows up, man. I, I need to be the kind of person that keeps my word. So again, accountability. Uh, it's very simple, uh, but it works very well. Again, as we're working out, I see him watching me and it's like, ooh, I should probably not just half-ass this next rep. I should probably not skip the workout. I should probably not cut corners, right? Because my son is watching me. Again, good accountability. And it helps him too, I'm Sure. So here's my conclusion, concluding thoughts regarding atomic habits. As I said earlier, I was a bit overwhelmed by the negative trajectory of certain areas of my life before I started the book. There was some weight loss failure, just efforts to lose weight. Eh, yeah, total failures, I guess. Not really. There were some disorganized schedules, some burnout, all sorts of things in my work schedule that were just out of whack. And I was like, I don't really want to read a book about habits. That's going to make me feel guilty and ashamed. And I don't really want to hear about how I need to suck it up. But I read the book anyway. And you know what? I was really encouraged. And I read the book, by the way, I read the book because my wife rented it from the library. She'd heard about it. She read it. And I bring that up because people are always like, oh, you believe in patriarchy and dumb women. No, I do not. My wife is super, super smart. And many of my best ideas come from her. And I just steal them because she's a great help me. And I love it. And women should be smart. And you should read. Be smart. So I read this book. And guess what? I was encouraged. Right? I just, I read it. I was encouraged. I, I can make these small changes. I can experience confidence from winning again. And again, my trajectory is right. Confidence has Just greatly been boosted. If you could improve your life 10%, wouldn't your confidence be improved? Mine is. I'm maximizing the time spent doing my best work. That's important. I'm less distracted. I'm getting leaner and stronger. I love that. You feel more confident. Again, feel good about your trajectory. Fall in love with your system. Well, thanks again for listening to this episode of the Hard Men podcast. I hope it is super helpful for you. It's been helpful for me. Check out the book Atomic Habits by James Clear. Again, we'll provide links for that in the show notes. Once again, we appreciate all of our Patreon and EricCon.com membership supporters. Could not do this show without you. If you're not yet a supporter, check us out. Again, EricCon.com or Patreon. Definitely appreciate your support. goes a long way to furthering this work. You can support for as little as $5 a month. Until next time, men, stay frosty, fight the good fight, act like men.